things in order. Uh, from the time I wake up in the morning to the time I lay my head on the pillow, usually I try to have my, line, my life outlined and structured for that day. So saying all of that, as I was coming here this morning, because I'm a little behind, so <laughs> I don't like being behind, it seems. We were going to pick up someone, and I said, I forgot this, and I forgot that, and we've got to go home and get it. And time was running short, so I had went to see, everybody's been telling me about the movie Top Gun Maverick. So I went with my wife and Pastor Jonathan and his wife yesterday, and we saw the movie, great movie, by the way. And so as I'm going home on 124, I'm thinking, okay, Lord, I've got 10 minutes to get home and get my stuff and get back. So as I'm driving and I saw the movie and I'm leaning to the left and I'm leaning to the right and I said, oh, I've got to get there, I've got to get there. And all of a sudden, my wife said, the brains, she said, is Tom Cruise going to pay your speeding ticket? And I said, you're right. So I slowed down and I made it back and thank God because I didn't, usually I see cops on 124, I see them on 20 all the time, did not see one. And when I got here, Mark Morrow said, I was praying that you didn't get a speeding ticket because I know you left something. You're not here on time. And I said, well, thank you. I said all that to say this. The movie was good, but it's nothing like being in the house of the Lord to worship him, to dig in his word. Uh, We're in John chapter 12. Uh, We're going to pick up at verse 36 of John 12. Jesus, this is probably his third and final Passover, his Seder dinner. With, and he's there intimately with his disciples. He said, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until I drink it again in the kingdom. And I know he's longing for that day, and I'm longing. And I know his children are longing for that day. But he had said in verse 36 of chapter 12, while you have the light, believe in the light, that you may become sons of of the light. The fourth gospel always makes a contrast between the sons of light and the sons of darkness. And we, we were all sons of darkness and daughters of darkness until we are born again, and now we are children of the light. He goes on to say, these things Jesus spoke and departed and was hidden from them. I told you last week, hidden from them is passive, Jesus Christ had nothing to do with it. God puts him away to spend time with his disciples, to pour into his disciples. And it says in verse 37, but although he had done so many signs before them in their presence, they did not believe in him. We're going to look at the word believe eight times here between verses 37 all the way to verse 49. And that word is pretty important in the doctrine and the teachings of Jesus Christ. Believe, having faith in him. Pistis, that's what it means, a joyful trust as Jesus Christ, the Messiah, our Savior in the world. And it says that he had done all of these miracles in front of them, and yet they did not believe. And I want us to think about as the children of Israel, Moses turns the Nile into blood. 
He throws his rod down, and it becomes a serpent. And we think about the lice and the frogs and the flies, the darkness over Egypt while in the land of Goshen, there was still light. And then that passed overnight, and the angel of death passes through. Remember the parting of the Red Sea and the manna falling from heaven every day. Can you imagine 40 tons of manna falling down, and they would see this, and they would feed on this. The cloud by day and the pillar by night. And yet, the Bible tells us they turn away immediately and worship their own gods. In other words, seeing miracles does not make you believe in something or someone. It takes more than that. I've heard people say, if I could just see a miracle, I would believe then. It doesn't work like that. Romans 12, Romans chapter 10 tells us faith comes by hearing and the hearing by the word of God. That we are born again, not of corruptible seed, but incorruptible seed through the word of God, which lives and abides forever. So it tells us clearly here, Jesus did all of these miracles, yet they did not believe on him. Verse 38, that the word, this is why they did not believe that the word of Isaiah the prophet might be fulfilled which he spoke, Lord, who has believed our report? And to whom has the arm of the Lord, the activity, the action of the Lord been revealed? And that is in Christ Jesus. And that's quoted from Isaiah 53, very important verse. He says, therefore, they could not believe. And right there, we have a picture of the sovereignty of God here. Does it remove human responsibility? I don't think so. It never does. There's still an accountability for every individual. But it says they could not believe because Isaiah, the same Isaiah, he says, said again. And please note, it's the same Isaiah because a lot of scholars say there were two Isaiahs, but Jesus knows nothing about that. There was only one Isaiah who wrote the book of Isaiah. He says, Isaiah said, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts, lest they should see with their eyes, lest they should understand with their hearts and turn so that I should heal them. These things, and notice it's plural, Isaiah says, so both of these things are spoken by Isaiah. He says, when he saw his glory and spoke of him. So that first part is Isaiah speaking in Isaiah 53. And the second part of that verse is Isaiah speaking in Isaiah chapter 6. And we know that because it says that's where Isaiah saw his glory. And we have to keep this in context. Whose glory did Isaiah see here? Of course, it's the Lord Jesus Christ. That's who he sees. It says this, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne high and lifted up. 
and the train of his robe filled the temple. Isaiah says, as I watched him there, the threshold and the pillars are shaking. And all of a sudden he says, the seraphim, each one has six wings. Can you imagine that picture? With two, he covered his face. With two, he covered his feet. And with two, he flew. Seraphims, burning ones. That's what they're called. Flames of, of a angelic beings. And Isaiah says he sees this. And when he sees this, he's already seeing Yahweh God. And when he sees Yahweh God, the first thing that comes out of his mouth is, woe is me. He says, for I am undone. I'm through. I'm ruined, I think the King James says, because I am a man of unclean lips. Now, if, you know, if you've read, I'm sure you have the book of Isaiah, the first five chapters, Isaiah is saying, woe to this and woe to that. Woe to those who call good evil and evil good. Woe to those who build houses and they usurp men's power and authority and all these things. Woe to everyone. And then when he finally sees the Lord, he says, woe to me. He gets in the presence of the Lord, and he's not concerned about anyone else. He says, woe is me. And when you are, are around people, as you might do sometimes, and you, they're complaining about this, and they're gossiping about that, and they're just complaining all the time, you know that they have not been in the presence of the Lord lately. Because when you're in the presence of the Lord, you focus on him, and he's focusing on you and saying, hey, you need to do this better. You need to do that better. You need to spend more time with me. And you don't have time to worry or criticize anyone else. He says, I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts, the Lord of armies, then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a live coal, which he had taken with the tongues from the altar. These flaming, burning ones could not even pick up the coals on the altar. They have to get a utensil, a tongue to do that. And he touched my mouth with it and said, behold, this has touched your lips. Your iniquity is taken away, praise the Lord, and your sin purged. So now he's cleansed, and when he's cleansed, he hears the Lord speaking to him because he's been purified, and that's why he says, also I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send, and who will go for us? Then I said, here am I, send me. He's finally in the Lord's presence. And all of his inactivity of saying, why aren't they doing this and why aren't they, they doing this? And the Lord makes him focus on himself. He stops his complaining and he begins to be active. He begins to start ministering in the Lord's vineyard 
when he calls them to that. That's what he teaches me here. That's what he should teach us here. There's something about sharing. When the Lord has spoke to you, you you can hardly do anything else when you've been in his presence to want to serve, to want to minister in his vineyard when you've been in the presence with the Lord. That's what Isaiah begins to do. Verse 41 tells us, these things Isaiah said when he saw his glory. Our context here, once again, is Christ because he said in verse 37, but although he had done so many signs, he is Jesus Christ. Before them, they did not believe in him. That's Jesus Christ. And he says, these things Isaiah said when he saw his Jesus Christ, his glory, and spoke of him. He sees Jehovah God. That's an incredible verse right there. After he sees him, he begins to work. He says in verse 42, nevertheless, and that nevertheless is a beautiful nevertheless because that extends God's grace to us. Even among the rulers, many believed in him. But because of the Pharisees, they did not confess him, lest they should be put out of the synagogue. They cared more about the synagogue and the prestige it held than ministering to Jesus Christ or for Jesus Christ. This, it gives the commentary on verse 43, for they loved the praise of men more than the praise of God. Things have not changed even to this day. How many times are we, do we get intimidated? I think of the, the holiday seasons, November, Thanksgiving, Christmas, when family members get together. And it's two things you usually don't want to try to talk about, politics and religion. Now, I can understand not wanting to talk about one of them, but the other one is a matter of life and death. Who do you serve? Who do you worship? And sometimes we can cower down because we don't want that uh, wrestling, that uh, energy against one another. If I say this, when's the last time you've been to church? When's the last time you spent time with the Lord? Do you know Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior? That's going to overturn the apple cart or the table, and we would rather not disturb that. Jesus says it should not be like that. When we give our lives to Jesus Christ, we're on his team, we're on his side of the court, and we lay down our lives for him. So we do what he tells us to do. He says, even among the rulers, many believed in him. And in Acts chapter 6, Verse 7, it says this, Then the word of God spread, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests were obedient to the faith. Just because someone shared the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ with them. Then Jesus cried and said, He who believes in me, believes not in me, but in him who sent me. So what Jesus is saying, you're not sliding the Father by believing 
in the Son. You're not sliding him because I'm telling you I'm God. You're not diminishing the Father who being in the form of God, Paul tells us, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. I'm not, Jesus is saying, I'm not taking anything away. I'm not stealing anything from the Father because I'm saying I'm God also. I'm as much as God as the Father and the Holy Spirit is, and you should understand that. And if my Father is drawing you and calling you, you do understand that. The reason the, most of the religious leaders, the Pharisees, those guys didn't understand it, because they weren't being drawn. And the reason they weren't being drawn is because their hearts were not open. Remember, it was because of envy that they will put him to death. And he says, and he who sees me, Jesus still speaking, understanding who I am, sees him who sent me. I've come from the Father. He has said in his bread of life discord, John 6, 57, as the living Father sent me and I live because of the Father, so he who feeds on me will live because of me. And then remember in that passage, it says, that's when many of them turned away. They couldn't accept his teaching. Jesus says, I have come as a light into the world, not just to Israel, that whoever believes in me, not just the Jewish people, should not abide in darkness, abode, remain there. Galilee of the Gentiles, those who were sitting in darkness, has seen a great light. That's the way it was when he came to me. First John chapter 1, verse 5 and 6 tells us, This is the message which we have heard from him and declare to you that God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie. And the truth, we lie and do not practice the truth. That's a litmus test for all of us. He says, and if anyone hears my words and does not believe, so he offers here life without distinction, but also not without exception. He cast a net wide to everyone, but everyone will not grab hold of the net and comes in. There will be those who believe and there will be those who will not believe. Jesus says, I do not judge him for I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. I am the ark. I am the one way. I am the door to eternal life, to my Father, to everlasting life. He says, he who rejects me and does not receive my word, that word receive is lambano, to take hold of, to allow your heart to grasp what he is saying. He who rejects me and does not receive my words has that which judges him. The word that I have spoken will judge him in the last day. You know, there are some people who seem to think 
and understand. But the next step to understanding is to grab hold of the word. Familiarity with the word. Coming to church on Sunday morning. Coming to Wednesday night service. Even reading your word is not enough. Once again, the religious leaders could quote, most of them could quote the first five books, but it takes more than that. It takes more than listening to Jesus' teachings. Somewhere down the line, we must put feet to it. That's what faith is. Not only saying the word, I believe, but beginning to walk in that way. That's the best indicator if someone is a believer or not. Jesus said you will know them by their fruit. You can tell me all day that you're a believer in Jesus Christ. I can tell you all day I'm a believer in Jesus Christ. But if I'm not walking, sooner or later, if I love you and you love me, you should come to me and say, hey, I know You were up here every Sunday and every Wednesday. But I've been spying on you, Pastor Victor. And I've seen you here, and I've been noticing what you've been doing, and I've been noticing what you have on your phone, and and a mistake here and a mistake there. But if, Pastor Victor, if that's your lifestyle, you might not be who you say you are. And I love you enough to tell you. That's what Jesus is saying here. He says sort of the same thing in Matthew chapter 7, verse 26. Speaking about those two foundations, the rock and sand, he says this, but everyone who hears these sayings of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man. A foolish man that comes every Wednesday and come every Sunday and come every day of the month and listens will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. You see, there's a pitfall that those of us who attend church can easily fall into. The thinking that familiarity with Jesus, his words and listening to them, It's the same thing as keeping them. So let's make sure we're just not hearers of the word this morning, but doers. Not being perfect. We will never arrive until we see him face to face, but we're walking in the sphere of righteousness. He says in verse 49, for I have not spoken on my own authority. These aren't my words. These are the words the Father has told me to say. And I always do the things that please the Father. But the Father who sent me gave me a command, what I should say and what I should speak. And I know that his command is everlasting life. That's what he wants for you. That's what he wants for me. Therefore, whatever I speak, just as the Father has told me, so I speak. Now, before we start chapter 13, I want us to keep this in mind about the Scripture. The first 12 chapters of John is Jesus' three-and-a-half-year ministry before he's crucified and resurrected. 
chapters 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, and part of 18 is that last night on earth that he has here. All of those chapters. John, in the only book that does that, the only gospel that does that is the fourth gospel. John gives us the intimate behind the scene, what was going on in Jesus' life with his apostles here before Pontius Pilate sentences him to death. He's hidden away once again. The Father has did this with Jesus and his disciples, spending intimate time with them. His public ministry is over with now. He said everything he's going to say in public. He's given them three and a half years to come and follow me. And now he says, oh, I've got to get with the ones I, I love, the ones who love me, who are intimate and want to be intimate with me, who's not concerned with so much of the outside world and the distractions of the world. I've got to pour into these boys because I know they're going to run with what I'm going to give them, the glorious gospel. And I want to to illustrate and I want to show them just how much I love them because I can tell them something that I can't tell to the, the entire crowd because the entire crowd is not going to keep them. It's not going to hit their hearts and let it sit there, and they can grow, and they can take that baton and run with it. They, they won't do it, but these 12 boys here, they'll do it. At least 11, we'll find out. Now, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew in that word, Odai, that's divine knowledge there, that his hour had come, that he should depart from this world to the Father. And this is a bitter, sweet occasion for Jesus. He loves his disciples, but he knows he's going away and it's better. It's expedient that I go because if I don't go, I can't send the comforter, he will tell them. So I must go. And he says, having loved his own who were in the world, those that the father had given him, it says he loved them to the end. He loved them to the uttermost. He wanted to show the full extent of his love to them. How, how can I do this? How, Lord, how, Father, can I show them how much I love them? He says, and supper being ended, the devil, having already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son to betray him, it just wasn't, uh, Judas's own ambition, but he had thought about it so much on how he can do this. And some say that Judas was ready for Jesus to set up his kingdom and he got ahead of Jesus. I don't know about all those things, but I know Judas's heart wasn't right. And, and the enemy also knew his heart wasn't right. So when his heart was open, Satan comes in. That's why the Bible tell, tells us what? Not that we're, let me straighten it out right now. I don't want you to say Pastor Victor said the wrong thing. The Bible, when you're a believer, you're safe and sound, but the Scripture still tells us to take every thought captive, right, and make it obedient to Christ Jesus. So even when the enemy flies over and tries to give me that thought, I must cast it down quickly. But these boys hadn't got there yet. 
and Judas' heart is open for deception. That's the way he wants to go, and the enemy obliges him to this. And if you know your Bible, you know that all of this by this time was prearranged. Matthew 26 tells us Judas has already gone to the chief priests and the religious leaders, and they had given him already those 30 pieces of silver. So all of that is set set up and ready to be displayed. And it says in verse 3, Jesus knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, Jesus is cognizant that of who he is, the Lord of lords and the King of kings. He has absolute authority. If you had absolute authority, what would you do with that? If you knew you had all power and all authority, wouldn't you at least make you a little plaque and leave it and let somebody know, hey, this dude has all power and all authority. He just doesn't use it. Jesus, knowing that he has all power and all authority, he says, I'm going to show you what I'm going to do with all this. I'm going to wash your feet. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given him all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going to God. Once again, don't forget, at this moment, at this Passover Supper, the last one they will have with Jesus. Once again, they are arguing what? Who will be the greatest? And I want us to see this principle here. When you have all power and you have all authority and you know it, you're secure. You should be secure who you are. You don't have to prove it to anybody. You know it. When you know who you are, you don't have to prove it to anyone. You don't have to say, let me tell you about my degrees. Let me tell you where I graduated from. Let me tell you about the job I have. Jesus is saying, just serve. That's what I want to show you. Just serve. Your security comes from your identity. I remember being a youth pastor, and we had this, uh, the theme of one of our uh, service weeks were knowing who you are in Christ. Your identity is in Christ Jesus. And that was all week long. We, it doesn't matter what job you have, what you're doing in school. Your identity comes from who you are. I think there's a commercial. I think it's a Dove commercial. I hadn't seen it in a while. Comfortable, being comfortable, that's it, in your own skin. Well, Jesus is comfortable in his own skin. He knows who he is. He knows where he has come from. He knows where he is going. He has all power. He has all authority. And the one thing I want to leave my boys with, with everything I have, I'm going to wash your feet. Isn't that incredible? The humility of that. Can you, can, you, can you see the picture as a hush comes over the 
entire room with those 12 disciples. They're talking. They're eating. They've probably finished eating, but they could still be snacking. And all of a sudden, he gets up. It says, and Jesus rose from supper and laid aside his garment. He had already done that. So this makes it a whole lot easier. He had done that in the incarnation, God becoming man. He puts all his glory, all his omnis on a shelf and comes down here. It says he took a towel and girded himself. And Peter would never forget about him girding himself because in 1 Peter, Peter says, Gird yourselves, I'm sure thinking of this passage, with humility, because that's what it takes to serve, humility. And it says, after that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and wipe them with the towel with which he was girded. I'm sure the disciples are hesitant, and I'm sure they're saying, doggone it, I should have thought about doing that. But it's too late now. Jesus has taken the position of a slave, the most menial task a slave could do. I was, I was reading about uh, the father Pliny, and I forget the other guy, and they were uh, other rabbi, and they were discussing, oh, uh, yeah, it's cool for the rabbis to come and eat with sinners and, you know, kick it with the sinners and kick it with the believers. They said, that's cool. But, oh, my gosh, serving them? A good rabbi should never do that. Jesus is eating with them, and he steps it down a little lower. He's washing their feet. I wish Pliny would have been there. Maybe he'd read this one day. God Almighty serving. Verse 8 tells us, verse 6 tells us, Then he came to Simon Peter, and Peter said to him, Lord, are you washing my feet? Lord, I can understand you washing the other guy's feet. But remember, it was Peter who said, Lord, I am a sinful man. I'm a vulgar man. Probably every other word that may have come out of his mouth until the Lord converted him was a curse word. He was a big, bad, tough fisherman. And he says, Lord, not my feet. Jesus answered and said to him, what I am doing, you do not understand now. And I want us to know this is not just foot washing here. Jesus says, but you will know after this because this is a deeper meaning than foot washing. I don't know if you guys ever been to some churches. I guess they still do it today, foot wash. But this What I want you to understand, this is not an ordinance right here. And what I mean by that, if we see it in the gospel, if we see it practiced in the book of Acts, and then if we see it expounded on in the epistles, like the Lord's Supper, like baptism, those things are ordinances we should still do. So I'm not knocking any church or anyone if they foot wash. It's uncomfortable for me. But what I'm saying, Jesus, this is not just foot washing. Jesus doesn't say every church should foot wash. Hey, if you're at home with your family or friends, 
If you ever come to my house, I might surprise some of you guys one of these days. They just kick, kick your shoes off. And you know, if you, that ever happens, if you know a foot washing is coming, what do you would do? You'd make sure your feet were clean, got clean socks on, put some of that Dr. Scholl's in your shoes, you're ready. These boys hadn't did any of that. They had walked who knows how far in dirt with their sandals on, feet all crusty and dirty. And the master is still washing their feet. He says in verse 8, Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. Double neck said, you never not wash my feet. Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, you have no part with me. He's, this is a picture of communion, a picture of fellowship. Simon Peter, the pendulum swings the the other way. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, he who is bathed, that word is important, luaud. And that word means a complete washing. He who is bathed needs only to wash, a different word, nipto, part of your body. That's what that word means only to wash his feet. He says, you have already been luau because remember I told you guys usually a week before when the pilgrims would come into Jerusalem, they would do those ceremonial washings, those baths to get ready for the Lord's Supper for Passover. He says, you're here now. You've already been ceremonial clean. All I have to do now since you've walked here, we've walked here, is to wash your feet, to purify you there. So he says, needs only to wash his feet, but it's completely clean. And you are clean, Jesus says, but not all of you. Can you imagine being in a room with 12 intimate friends, but knowing one is not your friend at all? I would say, hey, we got to kick this dude out before I say anything else. But even in this moment, the Lord is still wanting Judas to come back, to repent and surrender his life to Jesus Christ. How this works out in providence and sovereignty, I don't understand, but I do understand God and his mercy and his grace. That's what he's longing for here. For he knew who would betray him. Therefore, he said, you're not all clean. And here's the spiritual analogy here. You have repented of your sins and have placed your trust in Jesus Christ. You're clean. You're saved if you've done that. Matter of fact, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9 through 11. I'm going to read all this just to get to one part. This is what it says. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covenants, nor drunkards, nor rivalers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. (laughs) Here it is. But you were washed. That's what he's speaking of. And then in that washing Everyday life comes sanctification, but you were justified 
in the name of, Lord, of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. He says in Hebrews 10, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from all evil, from an, an evil conscience and our bodies washed, there it is, with pure water. Have you ever, I told you guys when I was first born again, I would wake up in the morning and I would say, Lord, are you still here? And he says, yeah, I'm still here. I can be a dummy sometimes. I did that for maybe a a year straight. Lord, are you still here? He might as well said it audibly. Yeah, I'm still here. That's the way it is. When you've repented of your sins and truly meant that the Lord Jesus Christ comes in and he says he'd never leave us nor forsake us. Now, the issue is, and what Jesus is saying, this spiritual analogy is, we walk around in a sinful, perverted world, and we do get soiled by walking in it. And as we walk in it, dirt gets on us. Filth gets on us, whether it's the radio, whether it's the internet, whether it's the universities, whether it's your job, whether you're a stay-at-home mom or dad, that world splashes up on you. And Jesus Christ says, you're saved, but you need your feet washed. You need to be cleansed and clean, and the washing of the water of the Word does that. He says in 1 John chapter 1, 9, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's what He says. You've been luau'd, and now all you need is niptoed. Just the cleansing of your feet that you're walking in this mess in this world. That's all you need. Verse 12 tells us, So when he had washed their feet, taken his garments, and sat down again. This is the part I don't understand. What amazes me, after Jesus had eaten, he washes their feet. I tell you, after I've I've eaten my last meal, I'm done. I'm not cutting grass. Whatever's not done after I've eaten my last meal. Ask my wife. I'm done. It takes a lot for me to get back up and do something else. Well, Jesus has eaten this Seder meal, and he gets up and washed their feet. So when he had washed their feet, taken his garment, and sat down again, he said to them, Do you not know what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord. Curios, common name. You can use it as sir or it can be translated to Yahweh. And I believe that's what he says. You call me uh, teacher and Lord. And he says, and you say, well, you're right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do as I have done to you. He says, most assuredly I say to you, A servant, listen to what he says, is not greater than his master, nor is he who is sent greater than he who sent him. Jesus has taken the least position here, and he's greater than them all. 
and he washes their feet. And he's saying, this is an example. This, some say it's, an, it's a parable for what I want you to do after I leave. Jesus is saying we should live that way. Because if we live that way, it's beneficial to everyone we come in contact with. If I lay my life down for you, if I serve you, it's going to take effect. It's going to change your disposition sooner or later. It might not happen right then. Jesus just didn't touch down here and the first day wash his disciples' feet. No, he lived a life of holiness, and then he washed their feet. And they're going to say, wow, I'm blown away. This is what I need to do. Paul says, you're going to have to wrestle with this. You're going to have to fight through some things to be able to do this. Paul says, this is how you do it. Let this mind that was in Christ Jesus be in you, who being God humbled himself. That's what it takes to serve one another. It doesn't come automatically, but to do it sincerely and genuinely, it takes the Holy Spirit in us. He says in verse 17, if you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. He doesn't say happy are you if you know them. Chuck Swindoll, my man again, he says this, the church doesn't have a problem with knowing. The church has a problem with doing. I'm not telling you guys anything new this morning here. The issue is not knowing. The issue is always doing. The father knowing that, the son knowing that, he deposits the Holy Spirit in us to yield and gives us grace to do those things. That's the challenge. That's the challenge for all of us. Jesus says, look what I've done for you. Everything is delivered into my hands. I know where I've come from. I know where I'm going. You call me teacher and Lord, and so I am. But what I have done, I've done as an example to you. So you are to do to one another. He says, most assuredly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor he who is sent is greater than he who sent him. If you know these things, happy are you if you do them. And what he's saying is fulfillment doesn't come from knowing. Fulfillment comes from doing. It's tough because you have to push through being tired. I've worked all day and I'm tired. I think of uh, the women's ministry. I think of the men's conference that's, that's coming up. People can have good intentions. I want to go. I'm thinking about going. But I had a bad day and I'm tired. And you have to push through all of those things and say, I'm going anyway. And you know what? Because I hear my wife say it all the time. I've just busted her out because I never say it. You know, I didn't want to go. I, 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 I wanted to do this and I wanted to do that. But you know what? And I said, I already know what she's going to say. Every time I go, I'm blessed. 
And I know you guys never say that. <laughs> yeah. She, she, she's never missed a beat. Whatever it is she has a tough time going or doing, every time she comes back home, she says, every time I go and serve or do this or do that, I'm blessed. And God says, that's where the blessing comes from. Not knowing it, but doing it. That's why James says, do not be hearers of the word only, but doers of the word. And when you wash someone's feet, I'm going to give this to you. And I'm talking about spiritually here, metaphorically here. Do it gently. We can wash people's feet with hot water. You should have known better. I'm going to, I love you anyway. You should have did it this way and you should have that, did it that way. Jesus wasn't like that with his boys. He did it gently. And I love this verse. This is our theme verse for Calvary Restore. Galatians 6.1. Brethren, if a man is overtaken in any trespass, any trespass, you who are spiritual, who's going to wash feet gently, restore. That's what we want. Restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, in a spirit of meekness, strength under control, considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. If you're going to wash feet, wash them gently. He says, I do not speak concerning all of you, I know who I have chosen, but that the scripture may be fulfilled. He who eats bread with me has lifted up his heel against me. He's quoting Psalms 41.9. Even my own, uh, David says, even my own familiar friend in whom I trusted, who ate, bread, ate my bread, has lifted up his heel against me. We know that's David and Ahithophel. Ahithophel was David's wise counselor. But when David sinned against Bathsheba, Ahithophel's granddaughter, Ahithophel, when Absalom had a rebellion, Ahithophel goes on the side of Absalom. And David says, my own familiar friend who I ate bread with has turned against me. I could kind of understand that. But look at Jesus a friend of Judas's, lays his life down for Judas, has never did anything wrong to Judas, only loved Judas, and he betrays him. That's sad. He says, now I tell you before it comes that when it, when it does come to pass, you may believe that I am. He shouldn't be there. He's saying, I'm God. Most assuredly, I say to you, he who receives whomever I send receives me, and he who receives me receives him who sent me. Verse 21, when Jesus has said these things, he was troubled in spirit, agitated. It feels like he's been kicked in the gut even though he knows it's coming. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15 and 16 tells us, for we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was at all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy 
and find grace to help in time of need. Jesus is not aloof towards our hurt, our pain, our sorrows, our sickness, or our trials. He's right there with us to extend grace to us. He knows how we feel, and he's there for us. He says, most assuredly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. Verse 22, then the disciples looked at one another perplexed. That word perplexed means doubting, and they're doubting, will it be them? Even Matthew says they look at one another and they say, Lord, is it I? They don't know it's Judas. That's how much Judas played the part, and that's how much they doubted themselves of following Jesus. Now, there was leaning on Jesus' bosom, one of his disciples whom Jesus loved. So we know that's John. At that triclinian table, shaped like a U once again, someone would come in and put the food on the table. Jesus is in the center of one of those tables. And Judas is to the left, believe it or not, which is the place of honor. And John, the beloved, is to the right. Where the others are, I don't know. But that's where those three are sitting. Judas at the place of honor. It says, Simon Peter therefore motioned to him, because he's probably at the end, to ask who who it was of whom he spoke. Then leaning back on Jesus' breast, look at that. He said to him, Lord, who is it? Speaking to him intimately, Jesus answered, It is he to whom I shall give a piece of bread when I have dipped it. The only one next to him is Judas Iscariot. And having dipped the bread, he gave it to Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon. Had been walking with Jesus for three years, seen the miracles, heard his teaching, probably did miracles himself saw Lazarus resurrect, all of these things, but still was not a believer. I'll read it again. I'm almost ready to close. Lord, who has believed our report? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore, they could not believe because Isaiah said again, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts. Lest they should see with their eyes, lest they should understand with their hearts and turn so that I should heal them. The point is, if you are unwilling to believe, you may reach a point where you are unable to believe. That's the game we play with. Verse 27. Now, after the piece of bread, Satan entered him. Then Jesus said to him, what you do, do quickly. Now, no one knows because remember, when he gets up, Judas gets up and leaves. They say, hey, he's probably going to give something to the poor or, or get, do something else. So they don't know it's Judas. But no one at the table knew for what reason he said this to him. For some thought because Judas had the money box that Jesus had said to him, buy those things we need for the feast or that he should give something to the poor, having received the piece of bread He then went out immediately. Notice what it says. And it was night. The worship team can come up. 
and it was night. I said from the beginning, the fourth gospel, what John does more than anything, he gives a contrast between the sons of light and the sons of darkness. And even when Judas gets up, the Holy Spirit lets us know, and it was night. And it's been night for Judas Iscariot for 2,000 years. It's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of an angry God. And I ask myself often, why, Holy Spirit, here, do you say an angry God? Why didn't you say a loving God? I believe he's angry because everyone who is in hell and will go there, the Godhead is angry because they didn't have to be there. It's not his will once again that anyone should perish. It wasn't like, and I'll close, it wasn't like the Godhead was sitting around the throne and they said, okay, whoever chooses the short straw has to go down and redeem sinful man. It wasn't like that. When it says, and he rose up from the table, is the same way when the Godhead was discussing this, he rose up and said, I'll go. That's the God we serve, a loving God, a caring God, who will go to the uttermost to redeem sinful man. He deserves our love. He says, do this. I'm doing this as an example that you ought to do for one another. I ought to serve you. I ought to serve you. And my motivation is he serves me. Think on these things this week as we go out into this dirty world. But let's shine like stars in the universe. Let's pray. Father God, oh, the humility, the kenosis of Jesus Christ who humbled himself. Lower and lower and lower to redeem us, tasted death so we wouldn't have to. Father, would you, would you draw us close to you? Would you just reveal to us, give us grace to serve one another. That's what I'm saying in a nutshell. Give us grace to do what you've done. You've shown us the example. You've shown us the walk. Give us grace to humble ourselves and serve our brothers and sisters in Christ. Even when it's inconvenient, give us the grace to think back how much of an inconvenience it was for you. But you came because you love the Father and you love humanity. May we think on these things this week and serve you with a full heart. 
And I ask all of these things through Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, to the Father God. Amen. Let's stand and close with the song, please.